I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. for joining me. I'm your host, Cullen, and you're listening to Cauldron. We've got a great story for you today, but first, let's take care of some of the housekeeping. To those of you that have already sent in your theories, thank you. And for the rest of you, get them in soon. The plan is to put out a theory cast for the first five episodes next week. So if you have any thoughts that you want to hear on the air, get them in. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes. I don't know how it helps, but it definitely does, so thank you for doing that. And the Patreon page is up, and the rewards range from extra content and cool gear to picking special episodes like What Battle I Cover Next or episodes dedicated to certain weapons or historical figures you like. So if you have a favorite battle or weapon or person, that you want to you want me to cover or even maybe come on the air and discuss with me check out the patreon page at patreon.com and search cauldron all right that's enough of the business let's get stuck in I'm a 31-year-old American, so for me, terrorism is something like assassination. It's shaped the world I live in, but has by no means been a regular aspect of my life. I have some vague memories of the first trade tower bombings, maybe not even memories, more like impressions. The first real terrorist attack I can recall was the Oklahoma City bombing which, though domestic, still counts. And I can vividly remember the magazine covers of the whole side of that building just pulverized. And and the images of the chain-link fence stuffed with teddy bears and cards are still haunting today. For me, Oklahoma City holds the same kind of space as the shooting of Lincoln or maybe McKinley. There are images... And I know it was horrible for for our country, but it didn't really directly affect me as a child. 9-11 happened when I was 15, and much like the shooting of JFK, everyone knows what they were doing, where they were, and who they were with when they saw the towers come down. I was in English class. Video, like the Zapruder film and any number of camera shots of the towers being hit, engraves itself upon the brain, and it's impossible not to remember the fear and and shock and confusion of those moments in the following days. But I'll admit, almost 20 years on, much like those that were alive in 1963, probably felt like in 1983, things are a little foggier. Uh, I remember the moments and the key facts, but the small things are starting to go. 
those that have lived through these kind of massive, momentous moments sometimes forget the fear and the feeling that anything was on the table and, and none of it was good. But for most of us in the U.S., these were just moments that eventually passed. And in time, things always seem to get back to normal. The, the mundane is inexorable. Which is why the idea, to me, of living in a time and place where terrorism and assassination was possible every day, hell, I mean, it was even likely, is at once alien and incomprehensible to me. I simply can't imagine a life where a scale version of 9-11 was something that in a bad year happened a couple of times, and in a good stretch, maybe once annually. That's why I think Israel in the 70s and 80s must have been one of the strangest places in the world to live in, in all of history. A modern, wealthy state that was constantly under attack and on high alert. A beautiful country, rich with history and culture, the home of three of the world's major religions, and also the planet's flashpoint for hate. Where the dreams and hopes of hundreds of thousands of the world's displaced meant the displacement of hundreds of thousands more. Where simple things like going to a wedding, school, or a birthday party could be deadly. Or getting in your car, on the bus, or on a plane could cost you your sense of safety, your freedom, even your life. Let's go back to July 4th, 1976, to Entebbe Airport in Idi Amin's Uganda. After World War II, the British territory of Palestine was in a state of uproar. Both the Israelis and the Palestinians constantly fought with their British overlords over limitations on immigration, whether they be for or against increased numbers or decreased numbers. The violence was bloody and pervasive, with nothing safe from the fanatics of either side. Modern terrorism was born in the hotel explosions and birthday bombings of the late 1940s. Seeing no satisfactory diplomatic solution to the Israeli-Palestinian problem, the UK made it clear they were going to wash their hands and walk away in 1947. And in that same year, the fresh-minted United Nations put a commission together to try and settle the issue once and for all. They came upon what seemed like a fix for everyone, declaring there would be a Palestinian state, an Israeli state, and Jerusalem would become an international free city under the protection of the UN. Israel was keen to accept, but the Palestinians rejected and threw the region into a self-destructive civil war that in 1948 saw Israel come out on top, and on May 14th, Israel became an independent state. The very next day, Israel was attacked. A host of Arab countries, including Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt, among others, tried to destroy the infant nation before it could get a foothold. The fighting lasted for some time, and eventually the ceasefire led to the formation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, both hotly contested stretches ceded to Jordan and Egypt, respectively. As you can imagine, 
The ensuing decades were full of anger and activity with everyone vying for more land in a relatively small space. Both sides believed they were not only right and correct, but that God was on their side. In 1967, in response to Egyptian mobilization, Israeli forces launched a punishing preemptive strike and in the process was able to win back Gaza and the West Bank as well as ripping the entire Sinai Peninsula from the Egyptians and yanking the Golan Heights from Syria. After six days, Israel had slapped around the numerically superior Arab Confederation and so ended the Six-Day War, a complete Israeli victory. Around this time, in the mid-1960s, the number one anti-Israeli terrorist group was founded, the PFLP, or People's Front for the Liberation of Palestine, a group that would spawn countless offshoots and wreak havoc for decades on the people of Jewish descent around the world. In 1972, the infamous slaying of the Israeli Olympic athletes by terrorist killers made the Israeli government react just as harsh, using their own special operations teams to assassinate, bomb, and snuff out Palestinian leaders. In 1973, as Israel had its attention elsewhere, Egyptian and Syrian forces launched a surprise attack on the holy day of Yom Kippur. Facing modern weapons and armies, Israel was hard-pressed, but after 20 days of costly, bitter fighting, Israeli forces prevailed and sent the invaders back. Though victorious in her two major wars, Israel was not safe. The Palestinians realized fighting the Israelis in conventional form was not a winning plan. So instead of targeting the country's military, they targeted the country's morale now not aiming at tanks and planes, but at innocent people. Air France Flight 139 left Tel Aviv on June 27, 1976. The flight carried some 246 passengers, mostly Jewish, and it also had 12 flight crew. Stopping in Athens, they picked up another 58 passengers, four of which were actually hijackers. Quickly after takeoff, around 12.45, the hijackers attacked and were able to gain control of the plane. The hijackers were a mixed party, two working for the revolutionary cells named uh, Wilfred Boza and Brigitte Kuhlman, and the others were part of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Understanding that they had limited fueling locations, the hijacked plane landed in Benghazi and fueled for seven hours. Once gassed up, the plane full of hostages left for the friendly nation of Uganda, where Idi Amin had made it clear he wanted to help. The PFLP and the revolutionary cells were demanding the release of some 53 prisoners held in Israel and a few other European countries. While negotiations went forward between the Israeli government and the hijackers, a show of good faith was made. In an attempt to avoid getting other countries involved, the hijackers released the non-Jewish hostages and moved the date on which they would start killing people back to July 4th. While these talks were ongoing, the Israeli government was planning a daring raid that would hopefully save the hostages and show the world that terrorism would not break Israel. 
The Israeli defense minister, Shimon Perez, was in favor of a military option, believing that the surprise and superior training of his forces would carry the day. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Itzhak Rabin was afraid of the potential for a catastrophe. As a former general, he understood that timing and precision for this kind of operation would be of the utmost importance. The possibility that all the hostages and the entire rescue squad would end up dead or in a Ugandan prison was by no means remote, and Rabin knew that. Up until the last few years, the decision to make the attack happen has been shrouded in mystery. But recent IDF documents re released to the public have shown how close things came. And the following is a transcript from the IDF papers. On July 2nd, Perez sent a note to Rabin regarding the possibility of tricking the airport guards by using a likeness of Idi Amin's car. Quote, I don't know if it's possible, but interesting, end quote, Perez wrote in a note. Rabin responded to the note, quote, One, when is Idi Amin due back from Moriitis? Two, why a Mercedes? End quote. The next day, Perez responded, quote, How does an operation start? One, they say it's impossible. Two, the timing is wrong. Three, the government won't authorize it. The only question I've seen and still see is how will it end, end quote. On July 3rd, Rabin addressed the security cabinet declaring himself in favor of a military option, quote, not out of an idealization far from that, but with knowledge toward what we are heading toward, wounded, toward dead, nonetheless, I recommend that the government authorize this." End quote. Perez, later that evening with the planes airborne, wrote, quote, The planes are on their way, and with them, the fate of Israel. End quote. Meanwhile, in Entebbe, as the non-Jews were released, an incredible act of bravery and selflessness occurred. The terrorists wanted all the non-Jews to leave and return to France, but the air crew of the flight, starting with the captain, M Michel Bacos, declared that all the passengers were their responsibility, and so the flight crew would stay. Quote, when I was being held hostage and had the possibility of being released, I called the crew together and said, we have to remain with the passengers until the end. That is our duty. It was an immediate, unhesitating decision. Every member of my crew agreed with me. We would stay with the hostages no matter what and return with them to France. To me, it was not just a question of the law. It was to do with basic values of decency and human behavior. It was, simply put, the right thing to do." End quote. The decision to move forward had been made and Seyrit Metkal, which was the crack general staff recon unit of the IDF, assembled and began rigorously training. The plan called for four C-130 Hercules cargo planes to fly dangerously low until out of the Middle East and then to fly high above any African nation's ability to monitor movement. In one of those bizarre historical coincidences, 
The airport terminal in Entebbe was actually designed and built by an Israeli firm, and they immediately offered up their blueprints and expertise, making the planning process all the more simple. The first C-130 would land, and in a brilliant but simple act of deception, the plane would unload a black Mercedes-Benz with Ugandan flags designed to appear as though it were Idi Amin's. As the Ugandan dictator was supposed to be returning from his tour of the Moriitis, the Ugandan ground forces likely would be confused at first. Following that would be two Land Rovers also masquerading as Ugandan forces. The men in the vehicles would be wearing the distinctive leopard print uniforms of the Ugandan army to further muddy the waters. Having landed in the poorly lit section of the Entebbe airport, the hope was that the ruse with the cars would last long enough to get the assault team to the main hostage location. Ideally, the rescue team and hostages would all get back to the empty C-130 that landed last, load up, and head for home with no loss of life. As with most plans, contact with the enemy changed everything. As the lead plane landed with no trouble and the fake motorcade rolled across the tarmac, the Israeli team came across a lone sentry. Accounts are a little shaky, but whether the guard lifted his gun in a salute or in warning, it's not clear. Either way, the team leader, Yoni Netanyahu, made the decision to open fire and urged the other men to fire on the guard as they passed. They all failed to hit the guard, but he was eventually killed by one of the follow-up teams. Staff Sergeant Adam Coleman said, quote, The moment went by incredibly slowly. The guard was at attention, his rifle aimed directly at me, and Yoni was with his body hanging outside the window, trying unsuccessfully to shoot him. The car kept driving, and the rifle's barrel got past me with no shot having been fired. What a relief that was. The guard didn't even realize what was happening. Other than the faint sound of the Beretta's suppressed shot, everything remained quiet, and we could breathe easy for a moment. And then a long burst of gunfire came from behind us. Someone from the Land Rovers shot the guard, and it was followed soon after by another burst of fire. End quote. Now was one of the most dangerous times as the rescuers had to cross a large amount of territory in the dark and ideally reach their jumping off point without alerting the entire compound. As the initial team made their move towards the hostages, the other three planes landed, including the last one, which was again completely empty. Once the rescuers reached the main area where the hostages were being kept, the breaching teams moved to their designated spots. After a furious firefight filled with confusion due to some bad intel that left some attackers at the wrong door or in the wrong place entirely, the hostages were located and the evacuation went into high gear. It's at this point that the Israeli forces suffered its only death, Yoni Netanyahu. He was shot by a Ugandan soldier most likely from the old airport tower. Yoni had put himself at risk by joining the raid at all, as he could have commanded from the rear instead of in the lead car, but as Shoal Mufaz said, quote, the mission carried a heavier burden on Yoni than any other mission. As for the fact he chose to be with the raid force where he was hit, in my opinion, he wanted to prove to everyone that he was the commander, that his bravery did not diminish, and that under the circumstances, he had no other option. 
he also felt like he alone could convey the message that we can do this mission, end quote. Being the leader and really the driving force behind the mission and the heart of its team, this kind of a loss could easily have caused serious issues. The determination and training, as well as the confusion as to whether or not he was badly hit, helped to keep the Israeli team focused on their objectives. For some of the hostages, this escape to the the unloaded plane and across the tarmac, this was the moment of the greatest tension. As they were getting on the plane, many thought that at any moment they would be hit by a counterattack of Ugandan forces and the whole thing would go to hell. But that feared Ugandan response never came. final escape plane, now loaded with all the commandos and rescued hostages, got up into the air and headed straight for Nairobi, Kenya. While the hostages were being loaded, the commando teams had destroyed around 10 Soviet MiG fighter jets, ensuring that the getaway would not be shot out of the sky immediately after takeoff. From Kenya, the flight back to Israel was relatively uneventful and full of joy as Coleman tells us, quote, We were all in a kind of frenzy, this feeling that, wow, we've done it, of infinite victory, of, look, it worked. No one has even, was even thinking it could have gone any other way. It was crowded, very crowded, but we didn't care, end quote. However, while in the final leg of the journey, the pilots spotted the dot-sized silhouette of oncoming aircraft and assumed they must be enemies. But the mysterious fighters soon took up escort positions, and the Star of David could be seen clearly on the side of each fighter jet. The hostages were welcomed to a nationwide party, one commando remembering, quote, And then we landed in Tel Nof, after already hearing the news about the waves of jubilation spreading across the country. We took a bus to the unit's base, passed by Ben Gurion Airport and saw the celebration around the plane that carried the hostages from afar. In every junction or town, we saw signs of truly ecstatic joy, end quote. The commandos were treated like the heroes they were. The entire operation on the ground took less than an hour, the hostage extraction itself taking just 30 minutes. In that short amount of time, almost every hostage was saved, but there were three that were killed, and also there were another 10 who were wounded in the firefight. Yoni, the mission leader, was the only death among the rescuers, while five men were wounded and one was paralyzed. All seven of the hijackers and somewhere around 30 Ugandan soldiers were killed in the action. Poor Dora Block, a 74-year-old woman that had been brought to a Kampala hospital before the rescue attempt was made, unfortunately had to be left behind. In a rage and out of spite, the monster Idi Amin ordered her executed, and Miss Block would be the final casualty of the Entebbe raid. The mission had been a daring, spectacular success, achieving all its objectives and with an astonishingly low casualty count. Israel was able to show its people in the world that they would not bow to terror and would fight back no matter the distance or circumstances. In an attempt to stir up outrage, 
over the violation of their territory, Uganda's foreign minister appealed to the United Nations for support in condemning the raid as an act of pure aggression. This failed as most Western nations applauded the rescue and believed that Uganda was likely involved in the plot. In defense of his country's actions, Chaim Herzog addressed the United Nations saying, quote, we come with a simple message to the council. We are proud of what we have done because we have demonstrated to the world that a small country in Israel's circumstances with which the members of this council are by now all too familiar, the dignity of man, human life, and human freedom constitute the highest values. We are proud not only because we have saved the lives of over a hundred innocent people, men, women, and children, but because of the significance of our act for the cause of human freedom, end quote. In fact, the admiration for the Israeli commandos ran so high that many nations copied them and created crack hostage rescue teams modeled after the Entebbe team. A darker side to the heroic return was the infighting and accusations that stemmed from the confusion in the night attack. Yoni had died, it was alleged, because there had been mistakes made and Operation Integrity had been lost. Or at least that was the claim of his family, including current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. It seems, though, that the chaos of battle created a blanket of confusion that smothered clarity. And so men standing two feet away from each other were hearing and seeing wildly different things. It's doubtful that there will ever be any real closure for Yanni's family, but that being said, everything has a cost. And that night in July 1976, the price of a perfect mission, the price of success and victory, the price for 102 rescued souls was one elite soldier named Yoni. All right, thanks for listening to Cauldron. That was the raid on Entebbe. Pretty wild story, I think. And a nice short episode. Pretty soon we'll get back to a couple of longer form ones, but I like these quick ones. It's, it's nice research and hopefully a good, quick drive to work listen for you. So, some food for thought for your theories. For me, the question I keep coming back to as an outsider and having no real knowledge of Israeli politics is how much did the current Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, benefit from having a war hero brother? I have to assume that on some level that helped him reach his political goals. So I'd love to get your ideas on that and anything else that you have bubbling up in your brain or that this might have uh, kind of made you think about. Next month we are covering two hugely interesting and important battles, one in the Mediterranean that's world famous and pretty popular, and one in China that is fairly uh, obscure and unknown in the West and is a pretty cool naval battle. So keep your eyes on the Cauldron Instagram for clues as to which battles we are going to be stuck in on and maybe win some cool merchandise. So as we started doing in the last episode, I'm going to wrap this episode up with a little story from the battle. So thanks again for listening and tune in for our next Battlecast. One of the most shocking results of the Entebbe raid to the eyes of an American is the letter of congratulations received by a massage station chief. 
It was on the letterhead of one of the many countries that now vows to wipe Israel from the earth. The congratulatory note was from the Supreme Commander's Staff, Imperial Iranian Armed Forces, Tehran. And it reads, Mr. Reuven Merhav, 13 July, 1976. Dear Mr. Merhav, well-planned and flash-executed impetuous operations of the Entebbe Airport in Uganda by the brave Israeli commandos saved the lives of a number of defenseless people who had been trapped in the grab of air route bandits, aimed at pursuing their defiled and unhuman goals, and ended the adventure, alerting international terrorism to think about the grievous consequences of their unwise and cruel attempts. Kindly convey my sincere greetings and admiration for successful accomplishment of this valuable military and intelligence operation, along with sympathies and condolences for the loss and martyrdom of the heroic unit commander dispatched to the scene to your respective chief. Sincerely yours. Thank you.